You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am Nathan Gilmore, and I'm coming to you actually from Statham, Georgia today, but I am an associate professor at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined this morning, no, it's not this morning, I'm just in the habit of saying this morning for whatever reason, uh, by Michael Farmer, who's an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, Michael, have you gotten to the point in semester where you don't know what time of day it is? Uh, no, I know exactly what time of day it is. I also feel like, in the interest of full disclosure, I should say that this whole semester I haven't been in St. Bonifacius uh, when we recorded this. I'm in Hopkins, Minnesota, in my luxurious two-room apartment, two-bedroom apartment. The Gerard Manley Complex? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, our our apartment is in Minnetonka and Hopkins, depending on who you ask. But I like to say Hopkins because, well, Gerard Manley, I suppose. That's a good obviously, answer. obviously. The man who approves of that answer is Dr. David Grubbs. He is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. How go things, Grubbs? Oh, they go well. I'm at the back end of a giant stack of exams and looking at another giant stack of exams. But, you know, in the meanwhile, uh, it's at least a few hours of Sabbath. So it goes, so it goes. Well, guys, uh, what's going on around the network? Michael, I know that there is a uh, Before They Were Live episode that I finally uh, got up online past my uh, deadline this morning yeah we talk about some shorts from the 1950s and josh and i get very political about gun control of all things we didn't watch any shorts that feature guns as far as i remember and yet we talked about gun control so you have that to look forward to cool there's also a uh, sectarian review uh, on the gospel for the no christmas for the left or gospel for the left i forget what the title of it was but it's based on a Gospel for the Left, so it's uh, based on a recent article by Danny's guest on that show. Uh, I believe there was also a uh, a book of nature, what what do they call those, booklet of nature? Um, mm-hmm. Something space-related, but I've forgotten. Uh, it was about the um, the the Mars lander, the, the, rec- the most recent Mars lander. Very good, very good. Um, and then the Christian Feminist Podcast. No, that was Trifles. We talked about that last week. So it's still there. You should still listen to it, listeners. <laughs> uh, we got a new Pietist Schoolman, though. Um, they're, they're, they've moved on to Paris. So there's that. Right on. In their European romp. Indeed, indeed. Well, listeners, uh, this week we are talking about uh, my favorite Bible movie. I'll go ahead and put that out there on the table. Uh, Prince of Egypt from 1998, so this is its 20th anniversary, uh, which is something I like to do for film episodes as movies from, you know, 20 or 30 or some multiple of 10 years ago. Uh, and Michael, I want to take it around the horn here at the beginning. I've seen this movie several times 
over the last 20 years, watched it with my kids, uh, so on and so forth. So I want to start with a focused opening impression from you two who watched this, as far as I know, for the first time for this episode. Uh, Michael, starting with you, what did you think of the opening seven-minute musical sequence, Deliver Us? And to what extent does the rest of this movie live up to, fall short of, or otherwise relate to that opening sequence? Well, it's a really striking uh, o- opening. Uh, the, the song itself is a kind of work song, but it's time to the moans of the Hebrew slaves, which I thought was a really interesting choice. It reminded me a bit of that Sam Cooke song, Chain Gang. Do you know that song? Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like it other than being time to the moans of the uh, Hebrew slaves, but I thought that was a nice touch. I also enjoyed, there's a there's occasional Middle Eastern flourishes to that song. It sounds like a woman. I don't remember what it's called, the, uh, the Muslim prayer. The, the Muslim call to prayer. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know the technical term for that either. I, I just call it vocalization. Yeah. Well, I thought I, there's there's several parts of, of that opening song that feature that. One is one is instrumental, and then at the end there's a woman actually singing it. And uh, I thought that was a really nice touch. It, and in fact, the whole movie felt more Middle Eastern than I think I would have expected it to. I thought they did a, uh, a reasonably good job at that, despite uh, hiring only white actors except for poor uh poor danny glover uh yeah but, I, uh, but jewish actors a lot of them like that's true I, like... and, and, and jeff, jeff goldblum <laughs> jeff goldblum's about as jewish as actors get i suppose so that that's fair <laughs> fair enough and then you know that that most middle eastern of actors val kilmer is moses yeah and god yeah that's uh that's the the casting choice that i still don't forgive him for oh yeah he's bad <laughs> in this movie he's real bad uh, anyway, the, the other thing they do in the opening song that they do a couple of other times in the movies is they have two songs sung at once. It's it's like there's a pain song and a hope for deliverance song being sung at the same time. That's really good. Uh, I, I It's a Stephen Schwartz trick, and that makes sense because Stephen Schwartz wrote the music for the movie. So so that all made sense when I saw that he was the composer because that's a, that's a very Broadway move. Uh, yeah. And... As this is not the only striking sequence in the movie, I would say the rest of the movie lives up to it. I, I actually enjoyed the rest of the movie more than the first 10 or 15 minutes of it, uh, mostly because uh, because the scene immediately following this one with the baby Moses going down the log flume ride uh, was, the, was the least successful sequence in the entire movie. Uh, so, so when that happened, I thought, oh, man, what am I in for? But I, I thought the rest of the movie was actually really, really good. And uh, the, the opening sequence besides Moses and the log flume was, uh, was a good intro to it. David, what was your impression? I liked the log flume. No, well, Did you really? <laughs> oh, it's so bad, David. Well, I, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Um, the building sequence... Yeah, I, I I hadn't I hadn't figured out what it was reminding me of, but but I, I think you I think you identified it, Michael. Um, the the chain gang sequence in Oh Brother Where Art Thou I, I think is the, mm. the thing that was trying to fight its way to the surface of my memory. Um, I also love the songs in Counterpoint. It's it's I'm I'm a complete sucker for that move. Uh, that it's I, I thought that was just phenomenally well done. Um, Egyptian architecture is huge, but it's never been as huge as at the beginning of this film. Um, this yes. is, <laughs> this is just cyclopean. Um, it's, it's 
colossus level stuff they're just absolutely enormous and the the the, the little human beings dwarfed by this massive architecture um you know going through this enormous uh like like just the the scaffolding the vertiginous scaffolding looking like an escher painting or something um it's just just uh re they do a, just such a such an amazing job of, of of scale of making humans small and insignificant and everything looks like it's about to fall over on top of the slaves and um i, I was actually waiting for that sequence um several different times in the movie i'm like oh no 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 don't fall on people <laughs> Um, the log flume. Uh, once the little baby Moses gets stuck in a basket, uh, there are moments in that which I felt like I was picking up flood imagery. There are shots to me where it stops looking like a basket and starts looking like an ark. Not, yeah, I think so. Yeah, not not that they've actually physically altered it or done some kind of like a weird morph, but um the the chaos of the river becomes the sea right and so those those two narratives were crashing up against each other and in my mind um other narratives that were crashing together in my mind um you you've got all the fish and all the birds that initially are sort of you know attending the uh, you know sort of swimming with the basket flying along above the basket like an escort like Moses is, you know, half Disney princess, half Lion King. Um, <laughs> but then the crocodiles come after him, and the hippos intercept, at which point I'm immediately dropped into the back chapters of Job, in which, uh, the, in which the massive behemoth in some way represents... Um, the strength and the power of God and seems to be a good aligned monster up against Leviathan, which is the, you know, kind of an, an, um, uh, an, an enemy, uh, an, a wicked monster. And, you know, what, whatever, whatever other interpreters do with them very frequently, those are, those are the behemoth and the Leviathan are seen as uh, the hippo and the crocodile respectively. No, David, I am not going to let you overanalyze this into tricking me into thinking it's good. That sequence is terrible. They're not thinking about any of that stuff. They're just trying to make it exciting for the children. I no. I, I, th I think I, it's both. I, think I, it's both. I, I, I disagree, Michael, because I think these are people who have done their their homework, and and Behemoth and Leviathan. As, as symbolic beasts are very important within Judaism, much more important than they are in Christianity. I, I will say, I mean, in favor of Grubbs's reading of this, that, I mean, this movie is so textured at every moment that I, I tend to regard things like that as intentional. At yeah. the same time, it's also a, a very sort of, you know, animated action movie. Are the crocodiles going to get him sequence? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously that's there too. Especially as the crocodiles later become both the threat and the mural, which we'll get to. But also, don't crocodiles eat you if you're bad in the Egyptian underworld? I, You'll have to tell me, David. Yeah, I, okay. You've studied this more than I have. Something eats you. It might be crocodiles. I don't remember. I still think that sequence sucks. Um Will you agree with me that the water looks terrible? Um, uh, yeah, you know. for the most part. 
I don't think anybody knew how to do water in 3D animation until Finding Nemo. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think that's about right. I'll grant that. Um, well, at any rate, David, uh, this film's version of Young Moses, who we get after the Deliver Us sequence, uh, differs from Exodus, as the opening text in the movie promises, by turning Ramesses, uh, who will be the pharaoh Moses confronts later in the movie, uh, into what I saw as a version of Shakespeare's Prince Hal. Uh, that makes Moses some variation on Falstaff, as far as I can tell, uh, combined with some kind of life coach early on. Uh, for your money, is this major change in the Exodus story more interesting or more distracting? Falstaff or Hotspur? Oh, I don't know. I, I guess I, I thought Falstaff because he always guides him into trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I, this is not something that I was really surprised by, having you know grown up watching the Ten Commandments, where Yul Brynner and Charlton, Charlton Heston are bros before their, you know, foes. Um, so, so that, that move wasn't necessarily distracting or, or, or unexpected. Um, and, and if you, and if you think about it, you know, you read the Exodus narrative, you know, just sort of crunch the numbers. Maybe there might be some, some succession or dynastic shuffle while Moses is on the backside of the desert, but this film has compressed all of that. Right, so so Moses isn't on the backside of the desert for decades. He he just seems to wander out long enough to grow a beard and learn how to shepherd. Um, so you would sort of expect whoever had been the heir when he left to be on the throne when he gets back. Um, so in term in terms of of bringing that relationship in, I I don't find it distracting. Um, it's interesting the ways that they've decided to make Moses. Uh, his roguish, uh, the sort of the roguish brother, while Ramses is the one who feels the pressure to perform, and yet, and yet also has the internal pressure to, you know, to fight against those restrictions. Um, I, I find that especially interesting, given that Moses later becomes famously the lawgiver. You know, they're only gonna they're only gonna give us an image of that, but you know, Ten Commandments are always sort of looming at the margin whenever Moses is introduced. And to have Moses inter- introduced as kind of a chaotic, good at best character is is kind of interesting. Um, the the way that they set up their relationship as as sort of intimate and nurturing, at least on in, on Moses' part, uh, makes a lot of what happens later in the, as they draw on the Exodus narrative uh, a problem. It adds a, it adds an additional um, emotional note. Which, frankly, I think is distracting from, um, from the mood of Exodus's presentation, especially of the plagues, um, the the kind of the kind of triumph that I, I I think we're supposed to feel as we read the beginning of Exodus, as God, you know, curb stomps Egypt and her gods, um, that that is much more ambivalent in in a setting in which Moses is actively weeping over what is happening happening to his brother and friend the whole time um Mo- oh yeah it's a, it's a tragic version of exodus yeah so i i'm still unsettled as to whether that's more distracting or maybe more realistic if that makes sense 
Michael, do you have anything to add on this? Yeah, I actually really liked that. Um, I, the the scene with with Moses weeping over the the destruction to come, I found that very humanizing for him, and it really made me think about what it must have been like for the historical Moses. I mean, whether or not the Pharaoh was his brother, and I, I don't see anything in the in the Exodus account that makes it seem like he was raised at the court exactly it says that his mother raised him and then when he was grown gave him to the court but i don't really know what grown means so maybe that was 12 years old or i don't know um i i will say i think it's really important that moses is the bad son in that duo because uh at the beginning we're getting this from the egyptian perspective so of course ramses is the good son uh, it's only right, later when right. the perspective shifts that the bad son becomes the good son. And there's almost shades of the prodigal son parable in there in, in the sense that the one who the one who was not Ooh. good has been rewarded for being on God's side. And the one who was good re- is not flexible enough to join God's side. Oh, that's interesting. I like that. Though maybe I, 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 I have not read a lot of um, uh, Talmudic or or other uh, sort of later rabbinic readings of these texts, but in the stuff that I've read, typically whenever they're sort of expanding or filling out the details of scriptural heroes, especially the main guys like the patriarchs or moses um every story that's told about them makes them look great uh i've Hmm. as as an as an exercise in um oh what's what's the word for that nathan i'm trying to remember i i'm say a little bit more because i'm i'm still not 100 percent clear um ah not 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 talmud but when they when they sort of sort of interpret midrash Midrash, yes, thank you. Um, yeah, if if you if you look at this as midrash, it's 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 an extraordinarily odd midrash because it doesn't do the kind of hagi- hagiography that you see often in 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 midrashic readings. Uh, well, and that's why I thought that narratives. again, you know, thinking about the literary texture of it, this is why I saw Shakespeare in it because you all you get that repeated invocation of the weight of the crown. Uh, which I, I can't remember if that's from the first or second Henry the fourth, but I mean it's oh, a yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a phrase that I mean I, I just have to read a Shakespearean. Okay, could you could to- I could totally see this Ramses like uh, uh, having having a a tug of war with dying Seti over whether <laughs> like I'm not dead yet. <laughs> oh sure, sure, and I mean you know there's the sense, and I mean we'll we'll hit this uh, with more focus later on that you know the the tears at the end of the movie come from the fact that on some level neither Moses nor Ramses wants to be the bearer of this divine responsibility right Moses has the word of Yahweh Ramses in this version has the ancient traditions and you know the refrain you know towards the end of the movie which we'll get to later is you know is this what you wanted and on some level the answer is no yeah So, like I said, I mean, it's a tragic vision. I mean, one scene that, you know, visually, uh, you know, just I I think is just masterful is, you know, the throne room is an open air throne room 
that looks out on, you know, a, a valley of statues. So whenever you see the pharaoh speak, he is speaking in front of a gigantic, massive stone representation of pharaoh. So there is the, you know, some version of the two bodies going on there yeah. in a very literal, striking way, right? You know, uh, pharaoh is Seti or pharaoh is Ramesses, but pharaoh is also Egypt. And pharaoh is also Ozymandias. Say more. Um, oh, just just the the uh, uh, Shelley, yeah, um, the, the 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 little the little sonnet Ozymandias in which the 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 traveler through the desert encounters this fallen Egyptian statue. Um, you know, the head is broken off, and you know, all that's left are these you know two two legs just kind of sticking up. And the caption says, "Look on my works, you mighty in despair." Um, I kept right. I kept thinking of Ozymandias all through this uh, film, especially as the architecture gets more and more damaged and and uh, and collapsing and all the rest of it. You know, the way everything is being built huger and more and more and more gigantic at the beginning, and that it, it seems over the course of the film everything is just falling down and cracking. Yeah, that's a literary level I hadn't even thought of. That's good. That's good. Well, Michael, I want to move on. In this version of the Moses story, Moses grows up, as you already noted, ignorant of his Hebrew family. So he's not raised by his mother as he is in Exodus uh, and only discovers that he's the son of Yocheved as a young man uh, just before he accidentally, frankly, kills the Egyptian guard. Uh, And he comes to this realization, among other things, by means of a tune that he seems to remember from his infancy and is whistling in one scene. So I'm going to go the same direction as we did with the last question. Uh, to what extent is this new story of discovery and the musical sequence all I ever wanted interesting and to what extent distracting? Well, I think it's interesting. I didn't find it terribly distracting as long as you don't expect it to, to follow Exodus exactly. Its effect is to turn Moses into a teenager who's trying to figure out his identity and differentiate from his family, which... You know, that's not an eternal problem, but it is a universal problem in the modern era. And since this movie is from 1998 and not from 1500 BCE or whenever, uh, it's a it's a it's a switch that makes sense because it makes Moses more relatable to most of the people watching the movie. Um, One thing that strikes me rereading Exodus is how little the biblical account cares about Moses's inner life. And, you know, that's that's. I hesitate to even call that a conscious decision. It was just a convention of the writing of that time, in addition to not being not being the important thing from the Exodus account of, uh, about what's happening, if that makes sense. But it really got me thinking about how hard it must have been for him that the, the Egyptians are this group he's super closely associated with. He must have felt like he was betraying his country and i think the movie does a really good job of of showing that the song yeah. itself i don't know that i found terribly memorable but um that that change in who moses is and where he was raised i think carries some pretty important emotional weight david what did you think about the uh animated dream sequence Uh, 
I thought um, with with the with the, the the mural coming to life. Um, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I I thought that was really uh, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, it's the best computer animation in the whole movie. Well, well, yeah, and 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 it makes sense because they're even though it's uh, rendering in three dimensions, it's rendering two dimensional art in three dimensions, right? Um, they're basically animating a skin even though there are layers and the layers are pretty cool too it's it's really really well done um but i love that idea of um what what would it what would it be like to dream or or imagine narratively in uh in a culture where the height of representative art is that right um, you know, I certainly know that my dreams are influenced by cinema. My dreams have camera angles. Sometimes they have narration. Um, I, I think it's interesting, you know, to consider this not just as an artistic thing, but also a, you know, what, what does it do to your imagination if your imagination, if you, if the images in which you imagine stories are, are framed in that way. Um, but also it's the, the, the way in which in Egyptian art, the size and power of a of a, a human or divine or monstrous entity is communicated by differences of size. So, tiny Moses um, running away from you know these massive threats uh, as he feels small and and his powerlessness um, is translated into a, a, a difference of a difference of scale. Um, I, I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and it seemed I, I wondered whether we, whether we were supposed to be had he had he seen this art before and now he's having dreams about it and some and somehow realizing that this is art about him so that when he goes and finds the mural it was a memory or is he supposed to have dreamed the art and then seen the art for the first time and so it's prophetic I'm I wasn't entirely I sure I mean he se- he seems to know where it is right so I took it to be that he has seen it before but he is seeing it for the first time okay yeah that makes good sense well Um, and and as i was gonna say in answer to the next question i i think one of the key things here is that uh the egyptians literally cannot understand that the hebrews are human beings like like I, i mean almost literally so it makes sense that he would see this mural a thousand times never think anything of it more than you would think Uh, of a mural about a bunch of bugs being stepped on and then realize oh i'm one of the bugs and suddenly see that mural as something horrifying yeah right right well let's move on to that one guys uh i mean patrick stewart's version of seti is i think one of the movie's most terrifying characters uh and i think morally one of the most stark parts of this film so david what case does pharaoh seti make for himself and what resources does this film offer for articulating why he's monstrous? Uh, and while you're in the neighborhood, uh, does Pharaoh's wife take the edge off of that or make things worse? Mm. The okay, so so first, giving Seti the first Patrick Stewart's voice was already terrifying to me because I'm not because I'm used to, to hearing Patrick Stewart voice say wise things having grown up with, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation. 
You and me both, man. Yeah, so, you know, to hear Picard saying stuff like this is like, ah, right? Are we, in, are we in one of those Star Trek alternate universes where, you know, all the good guys now have bad guy mustaches or, or something? Like, you know, <laughs> yes, yeah, like Patrick Stewart has a goatee and hair and he's evil. Um, so, so that was, that was terrifying, um, simply because it was his voice. But I think that that was, that's also a valuable thing within the story is that from the perspective of Egyptians, of Ramses and of Moses, right up until this moment, and even from his own perspective, Seti the first is the old wise guardian of steward of the kingdom. You know, he has in his own lights and in the and in the, the minds of his Egyptian subjects, um, he has always chosen well and wisely, and for it deserves to have his giant head on the front of everything. Um but he's the one who can say in his wise old Patrick Stewart voice that um the the greater good demands sacrifice. And what that means is a mural of babies falling into a river with crocodiles waiting. Um, and that only makes, that only makes sense if, you know, like you were saying, like you were saying, Michael, the Egyptians can look at that, can look at that baby and not see a baby. Um, Moses has now been enabled to see the baby as a baby. Um, having now remembered in some way that that, that those babies would have been, could have been, should have been him. Um, that that river could have, you know, was his river and those crocodiles would have been his crocodiles had they not been intercepted by, you know, divine hippos. Um, so he, he's enabled by that. We are also um, enabled by the film. And you ask what resources did the film offer? Um well, what it does is it, is, is, it, is it presents to us the oppressed Hebrew perspective from the very beginning. There is never a moment in this film in which we are permitted to admire the wonders of Egypt without having previously seen the cost of building those wonders. Um, and because that's the case, uh, I, think, I think we are ready to see Pharaoh as a monster and he's even more creepy because he's a monster with Patrick Stewart's voice saying that he ordered genocide in a regretful grandpa tone. Yeah, yeah. And this is after the throne room scene where, you know, he tears into Ramesses, you know, saying that, you know, one weak link can break the chain of a mighty dynasty. Right. You know, for him, I mean, you're right. I mean, he is the steward of you know, to, to return to that phrase that keeps getting invoked in this film, the ancient traditions. I mean, were it not for throwing Hebrew children to crocodiles, um, he sounds very much like the voice of Proverbs. Heed the, son, heed the words of your father, son. Learn, you know, listen to him and be wise. You know, shun foolishness, shun foolish company. Embrace prudence. Um, that's what he sounds like. And he's also the Pharaoh of the beginning of Exodus. Um, does it take the edge off that Pharaoh's wife speaks the way she does? She seems to, it, she seems to simultaneously see Moses as beloved and human and son, but also 
a Hebrew boy who should have died, and the only difference is that the gods picked him as if as if that selection, as if that um, destined uh, rescue makes him categorically different from all of those who were not rescued. Well, in the line that she sings, when the gods send you a blessing, you don't ask why it was sent. I mean, every time just gets me thinking, no, that's just the point of this movie. You got to ask why it was sent. Right. <laughs> yeah, I wonder I wonder if they still feel that way at the end of the movie. Yeah, there you yeah, go. I don't think there she's alive go. at the end of the movie, so No, probably not. Yeah. But neither is uh uh neither is Yokoved. So What yeah. must Seti think about Moses? If if his attitude is, well, sure I slaughtered hundreds of children, but they were slaves. How is Moses an exception to that? It reminds me a little bit of people who are racist who have a few black friends. <laughs> well, well, it, it reminds me as well. I mean, I, I do know of Egyptian texts, and David, again, I'll defer to you if you can give more detail on this, but uh, I remember in some biblical studies uh, classes back in seminary, it talked about the radical particularity of Exodus lying in the fact that a whole people is rescued but that in Egyptian literature there are stories of individuals who are pulled up from uh, the Apiru or the slaves uh, and you know made into real people so to speak yeah yeah um, there has been I mean that they have found records tombs of uh, people who were high court officials who were not, who were not Egyptian, who were foreigners, um, who were Canaanites, or um, uh, North Africans from further west, or you know, so 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 there was um, the uh, Egypt was not a racially exclusive society. Um, but, but class really did matter. I don't know that it's, it's so much that the Hebrews as a race don't exist. It's that they're slaves. Um, I see. Uh, and you know, Pharaoh's a God, right? Like, yeah, he's, he's, he's the morning and the evening star. Yeah. He's, he's human, but he's category. He's categorically different even from his subjects. Um, I, 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 I feel like there there may be some ways in which this movie too readily elides um, the racism of the modern era onto the ancient world, in which um, the class distinctions are even more uh, are even more stratified. Um, I mean, you see it even in ancient Rome, in which you know you can have high-ranking officials, people coming up to power in the army who are from, originally from some of Rome's subject peoples. And you could have Romans who are slaves who could be killed by, um, killed by their master's whim, right? Right. Ethnic Romans, you mean? Yes. Ethnic, ethnic Romans. So it's, so it's, so the, so the issue is not necessarily ethnicity. It's that the class distinctions are the thing that makes people more or less valuable or human. Not necessarily, not necessarily the, the, the ethne 
or or whatever whatever phrase uh, would you know Egyptians would have used the people that they came that they come from is not necessarily as important as the rank. Right, right. Well, Michael, uh, I want to move on a bit. Uh, one set of relationships in this movie that deserves some attention is Moses's story arc with Zipporah, his Midianite wife. Uh, walk us through the the brief but ambiguous moments from Moses's first non-Bible derived encounter with her. Uh, through their eventual wedding and their journey back into Egypt. This, uh, other than the log flume sequence, was my least favorite part of the movie. Zipporah is pretty much a standard 1990s girl power cartoon heroine. <laughs> she is a biblicized version of Princess Jasmine from the Aladdin movie. Yeah, yeah. And weirdly enough, she doesn't really have a personality beyond those cliches. So Ramses and Moses are built on certain cartoon cliches and yet you you sense behind that something real i don't sense that in zipporah so moses first meets her as as a slave she's brought to egypt for some sort of sexual humiliation which is underplayed she escapes because she's a tough girl and that's what tough girls in 1990s cartoons do and moses helps her escape because game recognized game or whatever <laughs> Later, Moses saves her sisters from slave traders, and so he's welcomed as a hero by her family. And the sequence is presented as his slowly becoming a Hebrew instead of an Egyptian. So it's a montage set to music, and he he moves from being Egyptian to being Hebrew. His beard gets longer. Or Midianite, really. Yeah, sorry, Midianite. His beard gets longer. He learns all the dances. He can't dance when he when he first gets there. That's a big that's a big point of this montage. All that stuff. He he slowly becomes Midianite, and marrying Zipporah is just part of that. Their their relationship pre marriage is not really developed all that much. It seems like it's going to be a romantic comedy where they hate each other and then they fall in love. But all that stuff gets alighted, probably rightly so, and she just becomes part of his acclimation to Hebrew life. Midianite life, non-Egyptian life. Am I leaving something out there? No, those are pretty much the high points. David, anything you'd want to add to that? I like her dad, but maybe we can talk about that later. Well, say something about Jethro. We're in the neighborhood. <laughs> well, he's, you know, he's physically large and imposing, um, but he's he's basically the, the movie's second big grandpa. All right. Um, you know, the movie, if the movie opens with, um, I know father, but he feels more like grandfather because he's got Patrick Stewart's voice. Um, you know, old Pharaoh Seti, the first old wise man. Here's another old wise man. Um, the difference is uh, he has he has a different perspective um, than Seti does. He doesn't think he's God. Right, right. You know, he doesn't regard he doesn't regard the continued order of the world to depend on his uh, his his choices and his responsibility, um, which is probably why he's joyful. Right. Well, he's got the he's got the song where he talks about seeing things from heaven's eyes, um, which is which is basically the opposite of of the wisdom of Seti, which is now you must be these people's heaven. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I really like the idea that a, a big part of Moses's, Moses's, 
um, reorientation, right? His, his recreation is being given a different father figure who, who sees the world in a different way that has much, much more to do with um, the perspective presented by Torah than it does, than, than does Seti's. Right. And it's odd. I mean, I, and again, this comes from the fact that I've probably seen this movie somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 times, but <laughs> it occurred to me this last time that there is an ironic edge to that musical sequence because looking at his life through heaven's eyes means that Moses has to go and be the instrument of destruction for everyone that used to be his world. Yeah. Sometimes the musical numbers, I don't think so, some of them do like the, the, do you want this number seems to match up, but the heaven's eyes one doesn't seem to match up quite as much, nor the, if you just believe hard enough, you'll get a miracle number, which is what they sing at the end. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that song exists so that Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston can sing it in the ending credits. Uh, Okay. See, I kept waiting for, you know, Miriam to start banging on her tambourine and talking about horses and riders being thrown into the sea. But, you know, well, that, that was the Hebrew song in the middle of that one. We'll I talk wondered about, about that. Yeah, uh, saying in Hebrew. Yeah, Ashira Adonai Ki Gaol Gaal. That is the uh, in Hebrew uh, uh, Exodus 15, 1 and 2. I found that exceedingly e- moving, even though yes. I had no idea what they were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I remember translating that passage in a Hebrew class in seminary and realizing it was the Prince of Egypt song. And I mean, it just made my year. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so cool. I, I've, I've been waiting to ask you what on earth that was. And now and now we know. Yeah, I, I jumped I jumped the gun on it, but that's all right. Um, well, guys, trying to be mindful of time here, I want to take it around the horn again. Uh, we sped over a lot of parts of this movie, although we have mentioned them. Um, and I want to give you guys a chance to talk about characters, if you want, that we've skipped over. Uh, David, you go first and then pass it to Michael. We've talked a little bit about Danny Glover's Jethro, but uh, what is there to say about, you know, Martin Short and Steve Martin as Pharaoh's court magicians? Uh, Sandra Bullock and Jeff Goldblum as his siblings, uh, or this film's version of the Burning Bush, voiced by, unfortunately, Val Kilmer. Man, you are going to be <laughs> pissed off when you get to heaven and God sounds just like Val Kilmer. If that is the case, Michael, I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> Take it away, David. Yeah. So, I'll talk about the musicians. Um they very, very clearly regard themselves as not just, maybe not just the power behind the throne, but also the power in front of the throne. Um, you know, they have uh, great faith in their own in their own skill to work wonders. Um, they are also kind of visually the comic opposites. You have the tall, skinny one and the short, round one. Um, they are. Uh, they are obsequious, uh, they are officious, uh, obviously Moses and Ramses are going to play pranks on them, so that's, that's part of the fun at the beginning. Um, but when Moses throws down his staff, it turns into a snake, um, and then they come in to confront. That was actually really, really interesting, and were I, were I in a context where I was teaching Exodus and focusing in on uh, on 
Moses working wonders, speaking for God in a in in the context in a context defined by defined by Egyptian religious perspectives. Um, I would probably show that sequence. Um, you know the the ways in which um, the wonders of Moses are are a, a powerful um, duel between um, not just Moses the man and and Pharaoh the man, but between um, the creator and these the the putative gods of the Egyptians um, is. Anyway, I, I thought that was very, very cool as they invoke the gods and they keep, and you know, just more and more and more gods keep popping up and Moses is visually cornered by them. Um, well, and then there's also several moments in that musical sequence that are very obviously stage managed. Yes. I mean, you have slaves, you know, raising and lowering blinds so, so that you get lighting effects, which probably wasn't part of the third millennium BC. <laughs> you know what, though? I think... But it's pretty cool. I, I think the lighting with the mirrors is something that really exists in the pyramids. Oh, is it really? Say I th- more. I think that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying this, so I don't, I don't know for sure. I'm not an Egyptologist. But I, I think... I, I have heard that the, the pyramids, some of them have uh, fantastic systems of mirrors and that there are lighted rooms deep inside them. But I could be wrong. Oh, I'll be. I, I did not know that. At the very least, that that is there in reference to that myth. Cool. Because I know I'm not making that up. That's cool. Um, but by the time you get uh, kind of into the thick of it, um, the weaker and weaker they are, the more and more obvious it is that, they're, that their wonders are really just parlor tricks. Um what I thought was very interesting is that the the way in which Moses wins the first encounter in Exodus, his staff eats their staffs, um, happens in a corner and no one seems to notice it. Yeah, I noticed that too. Like they they they're still cheering for the magicians, even though Moses's staff devours those snakes almost as soon as they're created. Yeah, I I, I wondered if that was simply to to kind of artificially prolong the drama of the confrontation uh, because because in Exodus you know Moses pretty much just keeps on winning and Pharaoh's um, stubbornness just never makes sense um, if, if, if you're just sort of reading the bare Exodus narrative um, the way they present it in the film it makes a little more sense you know, if, if there's, if there's distraction, um, but yeah, the river turning in the blood, that was pretty rad too. Anyway, that's all I got to say about the, about the wizards. Michael, do you want to add to that? Or do you want to talk about another group of characters that we had to fly over? One, one interesting thing about the voice acting, those, those wizards, uh, as I think you noted, are played by Martin Short and Steve Martin, and, and they're pretty reined in. So you can tell it's them. But they're not just playing themselves the way like Eddie Murphy does in Shrek or in Mulan, <laughs> for that matter. Or so, Robin Williams in Aladdin. Right. So we're which, sti- which seems to be a big influence on this musical number. Yeah. Yeah. But but I, I would say we're still in the relatively early days of celebrity casting. And and so it's interesting to see that Martin Short is not doing his annoying Martin Short shtick. 
<laughs> or at least he's not doing it exclusively the way I think he would if they made this movie in 2018 instead of 1998. Yeah, that makes some sense. Jeff Goldblum's Aaron definitely seems like the sort of guy who would build a golden calf. I thought Goldblum was a really <laughs> excellent uh, casting choice because Goldblum is likable, but also sleazy. Do you know what I mean? Like you can you can yeah, definitely yeah. see that Aaron building the golden calf as soon as Moses is out of out of earshot. And and Aaron doesn't even really seem to like Moses that much. He seems to be mostly annoyed by him. So I I, uh, I thought that was a really good vocal performance and really good casting. I don't like Sandra Bullock. This movie didn't make me like her any more than I did going in, but the character Miriam is a really interesting character, much more interesting than Zipporah. Um, her her role here is to hope. She's the she's the voice of faith, essentially. She knows when she's three years old or however old that Moses is going to deliver them, and she never stops believing that. So I, I think she's a different vision of female power, one that's much less grounded in 1990s cliches than Zipporah is. Yeah. And then we really ought to talk about The Burning Bush, which, Val Kilmer aside, I I was really moved by The Burning Bush scene. Um, It it doesn't, all of Yahweh's dialogue is straight out of Exodus, as far as I could tell. And I thought it did a really good job of showing the terror of that religious experience, like how weird and scary and, and transcendent it must have been for him. And in particular, I liked that Yahweh yells at him and then immediately comforts him. We were watching it and Victoria says, well, that's a mood swing. And I said, yeah, but it's pretty consistent with the portrayal of Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible, isn't it? Yeah, that makes some sense. I mean, I, I, I didn't prep this in enough detail, but I know that there are variations between Exodus and this scene. But you're right. I mean, it, it's, it, it hews pretty closely to it. I mean, much much yeah. more closely than the rest of the movie. And part of that is that God can get away with dialogue that maybe a human character in a cartoon movie could not. <laughs> yeah. You know, if Aaron went around talking in King James English, it would look very silly. But when God does it, it it, sh- it serves to demonstrate how transcendent Yahweh is from the rest of the characters in this movie. Right, right. But I, why, oh why, would they not pick somebody else to do God's voice? And and especially since it makes it sound like Moses is just making it up, you know? When you make God the same voice as the person he's speaking to. Well, yeah. and I wonder, I mean, I and I, I still don't know what to think about that because, you know, there is that very pointed scene where Pharaoh, as the door's closing in, you know, ending moments of Godfather style, uh, you know, tell them that, their workload is doubled because they're got because of their God, or is it because of you? And I'm yeah. thinking, ah, is that what what are they doing with that? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Kilmer just demanded to play God. Like he said, I'll only be Moses if you'll also let me be God. Because that's that's <laughs> what I think of myself. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, can you having to imagine yourself back into the world in which Val Kilmer had that much clout? Yeah, it might be easier to imagine the Exodus. <laughs> On that note, um, we've kind of flown over the middle part of the movie, mainly so that we don't spend more time talking about the movie than our listeners would spend watching it. Um, but the grand confrontation, Michael, in the second half of this film 
is not Pharaoh versus Yahweh, as the text of Exodus tells the story, and in which, as David noted, uh, Pharaoh really doesn't make it out of the first round of that boxing match. But instead, it is Moses versus Ramesses, thrown into mortal struggle by Yahweh on one side and the ancient traditions on the other, neither really relishing his divine responsibility in this war. What do you think of this as a literary appropriation? We've talked about it a little bit already, but dwell on it a bit. And what kind of moral vision unfolds as the plagues come to Egypt? Well, that the conflict is tradition versus Yahweh is really interesting, uh, given that the next three books of the Bible are essentially concerned with setting up laws and traditions. Uh, the, the rebellion against tradition strikes me as, uh, again, a matter of 1990s cartoons more than a matter of Exodus. And again, Aladdin seems relevant. From one perspective, Aladdin is all about ignoring the traditions of the, of the country and, and kind of doing whatever you want and creating new traditions. Also, in addition to tradition, Ramses is driven by not being weak. His father told him, as we mentioned, that one weak pharaoh destroys the entire lineage. The problem is that, that strength for the pharaohs in this movie require enormous oppression of Hebrew slaves. And ultimately, I think that's what the conflict is about. It's about oppression versus strength. And, and one thing that's interesting to me is that Moses doesn't want to do any of this, which is in the Bible, right? I mean, he tells the burning bush in the desert, uh, I don't want to do this. He, I mean, he may not come right out and say it, but it's clear he doesn't. Right. It has more to do with his uh, lack of eloquence than it has for his sense of guilt for murdering the Egyptian, though, in Exodus. I have right. always read that as him making an excuse. Because who, right, fair enough, who fair would want to do this, you know? Like, like, yeah, it's, a, it's an it's, insane thing It's also the source of do. my favorite joke from Fiddler on the Roof, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> what the movie adds is he regrets it when it's been done, which, uh, again, I, I found really effective. And that he doesn't even raise his staff to part the Red Sea. And I meant to look that up. Uh, is that in the Bible or is it just in the Ten Commandments that Moses is, is at least partially responsible for parting the Red Sea? Ooh, I don't know offhand. Yeah. Well, this is certainly a change from the version everybody knows, which is the Ten Commandments version. He does not raise his staff. It just parts in front of the Israelites. And I, I found that fascinating. Moses succeeds through weakness and passivity, not through strength. He doesn't really do anything in this movie. He uh, Things yeah. just seem to happen around him. Yahweh is the ultimate mover of everything. And in that sense, the morality of the movie seems Christian to me. Although, of course... Human weakness versus divine strength is a major theme in the Hebrew Bible as well. So I wouldn't I wouldn't hammer that distinction too hard. But I, I really was interested in the way that, that Moses succeeds through his weakness and that, that Yahweh works even though Moses is reluctant at best. Yeah. You definitely get the sense that if it was up to Moses, he would not have brought those plagues on Egypt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That 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 part of it really really troubles me because the the depiction of Moses having a more sympathetic moral compass than God is one is one that bothers me. Um, but I've got the passage of the Red Sea if you want to hear. 
Okay, I yeah, got hit one. it, hit it. Okay, so before, so first, Moses doesn't stand around with worried eyebrows, looking at Pharaoh and the water, going, "Whoa." Um, first, everyone's complaining, which these 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 Hebrews don't are remarkably complaint free once they leave. I noticed that too. I yeah. I turned to Victoria and said, "You know, it's uh kind of sad to think that all of these people are going to wander for forty years. Most of them are never going to see the promised land." <laughs> right. Um, but Moses actually has lines: uh, "Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which we will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent." Um, which. Why do they want to take the rad lines away from Moses? I don't get that. And then Moses responds, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of the Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. All right. So, but, yeah, he does He does it in the, in the Exodus account. Well, I mean, it, it, he's the subject of the active verb, divide, right? Yeah. But then it also says that as he's stretching out his hand, the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind. So, but but nonetheless, Moses is taking an active stance and God acts in concert with Moses's active stance. Um this this Moses he steps into the sea? Well, no, no, that was the river. Did he, does he step into the sea? I know he sticks nope, his staff not in, into not it. Until, not until it parts. Yeah, he did step into the river, though, when he turned it to blood. But he seems to not be aware that that's what's going to happen. Right. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very sort of Kazantzakis version of turning the Nile to blood. Right. Can we, can we return to Moses having a more sympathetic moral compass than than God because I have two things to say about yeah that. go ahead one of them is he goes along with God anyway we never see him argue with God about it um so so he may be sympathetic he may be in grief but at no point does that impede him doing what God tells him to do and I, I think that's an important distinction number two Abraham has a more sympathetic moral compass than God which is why he talks him down from or tries to talk him down from destroying Sodom and Gomorrah so even if we saw Moses arguing with God about this I think there's a biblical precedent for that okay that's fair and then Moses also does it in uh, Exodus 32 uh, when the golden calf is being built by Jeffrey Goldblum um, <laughs> you know, the uh... <laughs> Uh, you know, Yahweh says, I'm going to destroy all of them and start over with just you, Moses. And, and Moses talks him out of it. Yeah. So I, uh, I just, uh, just, uh, got some, got some rings and I, uh, threw them in a fire and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, there, there was a gap. There was a gap. Well, it, I think, it came I think out of it's obvious that Aaron was so busy, uh, thinking about whether he could, that he didn't bother to think about whether he should. <laughs> gold, gold, uh, finds a way. Yes. Yes. <laughs> But um. Oh shoot! Yeah, yeah. Um, and now I've forgotten what I was going to say in actual response. Shoot. <laughs> I... <laughs> yeah, one thing that uh, again, you know, through like many many v- viewings of this movie, uh, that strikes me is Michael. You're right. Moses never does uh, waver from his mission. Neither does Pharaoh. And when they are singing in counterpart, the "Is this what you wanted?" which is a you know a. a 
and it's a variation on you know all I ever wanted from earlier in the movie. The uh, chorus uh, singing counterpoint to them is singing this very concussive counterpoint that's very reminiscent of O Fortuna. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the thus saith the Lord. Yeah, yeah. I've, so, I, mean, I found that, that really there, there, there is so much texture to this movie. I mean, I, I, I really do appreciate this movie, even after 20 years, because there's so much going on. Uh, it might be a little bit too much, but I dig it. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I really liked this movie, and I, I had avoided it, because I, I always assumed it was either blasphemous or treacly. And it's really neither. It's a different version. You certainly wouldn't want to look at this instead of reading the Exodus uh, account of it, but... Uh, no, but I mean, I, I don't. I think it makes that pretty clear in the opening frame. Yeah, I, I, I would highly recommend this movie if people somehow, like me, have not seen it. Yep. Yeah. Well, at any rate, David, uh, I think this is the third time we've gone around the horn, but it's just because I can't, there's too many targets in this movie, I don't know what to, to, what to look at. So for a fan of the movie like me, this conversation has gone by entirely too quickly. I could talk about this thing for four hours. But we should be courteous of our listeners' time, so you start, David, and pass it off to Michael. Uh, what would you point our listeners to as they watch or re-watch this movie? Uh, whether a musical sequence, the visual style, a particular scene that we've neglected, a change from the Exodus narrative, whatever. Just talk about what you want to talk about, pass it off to Michael, and then we'll wrap this thing up. Uh, the Paleo-Hebrew on the tablets at the in the... In... You know, some of the very, very last shots. That's That was kind of neat. Man, is that a grub's answer to that question. Yeah. <laughs> I also like the skinny Egyptian dogs. Um, I, I thought those were really, really fun. Um, Moses is, I, I, I don't even know what what breed that is. They look like whippets. Um, but I, I loved his, 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 his Egyptian dogs his Egyptian dogs, but really all the, all the animals in this film are kind of, uh, are, are fun. They're, they're very, you know, with the exception of the crocodiles, um, you know, they're, they're kind of cartoony animals. You've got, you know, sheep with hilarious facial expressions and, you know, the camels are doing their camel thing. Um, I was happy that they didn't give Moses, you know, a sassy sheep sidekick or something like that. Like I, I appreciated, <laughs> I appreciated that restraint. <laughs> maybe a talking pig and then then when god prohibits eating pig at the end of the movie the pig could look at the camera and go <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay all right so that'd be fun um and then uh and then oh gosh for a last point um the uh the plagues uh, I I I loved I I I appreciated the the visual interpretation, visual interpretation of the plagues. That was that was really impressive. My only complaint, and this is we've already complained about Val Kilmer being the voice of Moses, but also Moses himself is he's wispy. Like he's this you know he's this kind of wispy little guy who always looks a bit apologetic even when he's t- asking for his, even when he asks for his people to let be let go you know it's uh, I, you know say say what you will about Charlton Huston's Moses but you know at least he could thunder 
Um, I, I I have a really hard time seeing this Moses do Mosesy things, um, though I can totally see him in that. Oh, what it? Where is it? Is is it in Numbers where he gets kind of overrun with with all the problems and his father-in-law has to step in and you know assign it to committees? Which I think Danny Glover's Jethro could do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but he's I, he's too old for that stuff. The 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 the, the choice to make Moses so unpowerful is feels to me such a strange choice from what you know but just just based on you know looking looking at who's behind this film um this is uh i feel like a a, a devout a devout exercise of of many largely Jewish imaginations um, and that they, and that they present Moses in this way is it, it, it's really interesting and I'm not entirely certain what to do with it. Um, and the fact that they will rewrite so much of what Moses says in Exodus, even as they are incredibly um, reluctant to give God any lines that he doesn't have in the text that I actually really appreciated. Um, but the ways in which the ways in which they change Moses seems really, really strange to me. And I would be interested to see if anybody had ever done more serious work with those choices. Um, anyway, yeah. Michael, what do you got? I got a point to the scene with the killing of the firstborn, uh, which is uh, really remarkable, I think. You have a white cloud falling over Egypt. It actually butts up against the Hebrew houses that have the blood on the on the stoop, and then it, it moves on from them. Uh, the Egyptian firstborn, you wonder how they're going to handle this in a, in a children's movie, right? They, they just exhale a breath, and then that breath joins this cloud, this white cloud that's killing all the Egyptian children. It is a very moving scene. It's a very frightening scene. You see... You see it from the Egyptian perspective, and, and, and you, you think about the number of more or less innocent people who die in this, and then it connects it back to the number of innocent children who died in the, uh, in the Egyptian slaughter of the Hebrew children, um, except that the Egyptians had a way to avoid this if only their pharaoh had listened. So I found that, I found that to be a really incredible sequence, maybe the best in the whole movie. Mm. And in a movie that, from the first frame to the last frame, is just so filled with music, it is completely devoid of music for that whole sequence. Yeah, yeah. I I, I really really love that sequence too. I, I yeah. Well, and it is it, it's a ground level treatment too. I mean, you know, Michael talked about the Egyptian perspective, but also. You know, the shot of, you know, the Hebrew mother with her two children huddled close and, you know, the the flying destroyer light, you know, hovers outside their door and you see the light sweep over their faces as it moves across the door slowly. I mean, that it's terrifying. <laughs> and then um, I, I also want to mention it's it's real quick, but a, uh, a scene that made me weep was the old woman stumbling as she came out of Egypt. And I'm about to cry now. And the little girl helping her. You, you oh, just, that's yeah. great. You just it think is. about what it must yeah. have been like to live to that age as a slave and then be then be set free like that and then to connect it with the younger generation. I've, I'm so moved by that. 
And it's very understated. Yeah. They, they're, they're not, it's not a weeper. Like they're, it's, it's very quiet. It is. Yeah. It is. I, there are many moments in this film where I admired their restraint. Um, a lot of places when it could have, when it could have gone, it could have gone sappy. Um, and it doesn't. I like that. Well, and at, you know, the moment of Ramesses turning against Moses, I mean, I think is one of those subtle moments because, you know, it's it, it's a, it's an unspoken moment where Moses takes off the ring that Ramesses had given him at the royal banquet and sets it on the throne and walks away. And, you know, Ramesses picks it up and, you know, all he says is, I had hoped. And yeah. he trails off and his eyes close. And then when his eyes flash open, the music changes and the next act has begun. Yeah. You know, if 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 this had been um if, if evangelicals had directed this movie, it, those 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 moments would not have been subtle. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I I wish you weren't right, but I think you're right. <laughs> have either of you seen the sequel? I mean, obviously David, you probably haven't since you hadn't seen the original. Yeah, no. I've seen the sequel and and in fact I uh, watched it for the first time with my kids and it is definitely attempt to cash in on this one it's not nearly as good um you know uh gosh who is it um voicing joseph shoot um uh batman in the justice league movie is his name just escaped me ben affleck yes indeed so they go from batman to batman <laughs> Yeah, they, <laughs> i didn't even think about that but yeah they do they do and it is not nearly as good um uh, yeah, I mean, I and I, I think it deserved to go straight to VHS and then not much farther than that. Next, it's a film of Daniel starring, I don't know, that growly guy. George Clooney. <laughs> or, uh, Clooney. Or, I like Michael Keaton as Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe, maybe Christian Bale, he could be like, I saw a vision of beasts. It'd be great. Oh, you've got lions? Good for you! (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note... (laughs) Get on it, DreamWorks. Uh, Yeah, there you go. Uh, I believe our next episode is going to be our annual Christmas show, Michael. What are we talking about? We're talking about the poem slash hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. The original is by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. You can probably also find about a billion pop versions of it if you're so inclined. Very good. Well, listeners, if you have anything to uh, add to our conversation here or uh, contest that we said here, you can write to us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can hit us on the Facebook page. You can go to christianhumanist.org and comment on this show's show notes. We'd also appreciate it if you would go to uh, iTunes. There we go. Uh, and give us a five-star rating. iTunes is the place where most people acquire their podcasts. Although if you want to leave us reviews on Podcast Addict or Overcast or any of the other pod distributors, we'd definitely be grateful. Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our uh, our audio editor, no, our intern is Ellen Peterson. I'm falling apart here. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. And in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs, I am Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.